Let me, let me give you the backdrop in two ways for this message. Number one, I've been trying to pay attention to the lectionary readings for the global church this year more than I ever have in my life, which is basically what is the global church reading today? What's the lectionary reading? What's the prophetic word? What's the gospel reading? And I've been trying to pay attention to them to see where the church is and, and walk through it with it. In fact, to the point that last Sunday I was in Missouri and I preached the lectionary reading for the sixth Sunday after Pentecost, where Mary and Martha host Jesus and Martha says, Lord, don't you care that Mary isn't helping me in the kitchen? And you know the story. So we preached that because that was the lectionary reading. Well, the next in the procession is from Luke 11, the famous moment where Jesus gives what we call the Lord's Prayer. And then the story of the friend who comes at midnight and knocks on the door and says, I've got a friend here and I don't have any bread. Can you loan me bread? And then it goes down through the ask and you shall be, it shall be given, seek and you shall find, knock and the door shall be opened to you. All the way down through the famous, if your son asked for bread, would you give him a stone? That's the lectionary reading for today. So I had that in my peripheral, like that's maybe where we go. And uh, as I began to sort of toss that around a little bit and think on the, the possibility of that, um, my heart began to turn towards a, a very simple message on the love of the Father and the fact that we have a father. And I'm going to be very honest with you. I sort of argued with that because I thought, well, this room's way deeper than needing a love of the father message. Whoever comes into that room on Sunday knows they're a son. They know they're a daughter. I don't need to get up and preach a sonship message. I don't need to get up and preach a daughterhood sermon. They don't need to be convinced that God's a father. There's nobody gonna be in that room that thinks God's a taskmaster or that they're a servant or that needs to hear him as father. And I kicked that around enough to go, yeah, it probably should do something deeper. Probably should dig something else out. There's a lot to mine out in the Word. And the more I did that, the more I really felt the Holy Spirit saying, you need reminded, Paul. You need reminded of the fact that I am a father. Because for so much of your faith journey, you did not see me that way. And even though you have it now, you have the theology of it, and you have the scriptures to back it, there are way too many moments where you start to slip into this idea that I am some kind of different father, a father that doesn't look like the father should look. And so retread those waters, re-enter that pool, see what you can find. So I say to you that I am preaching, teaching what I think is a pretty simple sermon on the Father's love today. And I'm using part of the lectionary reading that the global church is, is using today. But I do not assume that I know him as Father. I assume that I know he is a Father. And I assume that I know that I'm his son. But I do not assume, because the Holy Spirit put this strongly enough on my heart, that I do not assume that I properly know him in the way that I ought to as father. And I'm gonna make another assumption. If I feel that way, there's a good chance somebody else does. Maybe none of you, but maybe somebody watching, maybe somebody listening down the road will say, yeah, I thought I knew him as father, but man, I needed to hear that because I needed to refocus. I needed to see it again because I needed a fresh revelation of what it would mean if he really is my father. And I needed to, to pull off some grave clothes that I had that still had me serving God as Supreme Lord or as Creator. And none of that's wrong. God is Supreme Lord. He is he's King of Kings. He's Lord of Lords. You can throw out all the titles. But I don't believe Jesus came to reveal any of those titles to us. 
He came to show us that he had a dad and that that dad was our dad. And that means it ought to be forefront in our mind. And so I want to try to assist today in removing another bandage of grave clothes from your life. For all of us who know he is our father, may we go down that road one more time to, to trot a road we know so well. And to start with, before we read the end of that lectionary reading, we're going to read the last three verses of that from Luke 11, that, or that portion of Luke 11. Before we do that, I want you to think about this in regards to the Father and the Father's love. At the time of Christ, it was not clear that God had paternal love toward man. All I mean by that is, is if they didn't think of God in terms of a paternal love. They didn't think of Him in terms of Father. And it wasn't clear, and what I mean by that is they had no reason for it to be clear. They didn't see God as a father. Therefore, they could not easily see God's actions as loving. They saw God's actions as sovereign. It wasn't as if they said God does this because he loves us. They said God does this because he's God. How many of us have ever said God can do this because he's God, not God does this because he's loving? Because sometimes we have sovereignty so much higher than love that whenever we see God doing something we don't think is very loving, we cross out the loving part and just go to sovereign. Oh, I can't explain why this is happening, but God's in charge. God's sovereign. And you go, yeah, but is it loving? God's in charge. God's, we almost act like sovereignty is higher than love. Like love is a cheap definition, a little kid definition of God. Sovereignty is a good theological definition of God. But I propose that we're actually doing that because we don't want to confront what it means to really live under the love of God. And we don't want to confront what it means if stuff's happening around us and it isn't because of the sovereign God. And so we might, they might not have looked at everything and went, God does this because God is loving. In fact, I don't think they looked at anything and said, God does this because God is loving. I think they looked at things and went, God does it because God is God. God does it because God is powerful. God does it because God is sovereign. And I've heard that rhetoric used, probably so have you, for a lot of stuff, a lot of ungodly stuff. Well, hey, God's God. God knows what's going on. God's in charge. No real filter for it to be done as loving. And this is why the disciples said to Jesus in John 14, just show us the Father. Remember that? Just show us the Father. Now, what was Jesus' response? If you see me, you've seen the Father. And what I've done with that for a long time, and we studied John here in our Tuesday group for years, and we spent a lot of time in John 14. And what I've done with that a lot of times is to say that Jesus was showing them the Father, but because they had a bad image of the Father, they didn't really pick it up as being the Father when they saw it. I'd like to amend that. Jesus was showing them the Father. They didn't have a bad image of the Father. They had no image of the Father. They, it wasn't as if they had a bad dad in their mind. They didn't have a dad in their mind. It, what, they didn't view God in paternal terms quite like we can because of what Jesus tells us. And so that's why I think the disciples look at Jesus and go, well, okay, then just show us the Father. What would it look like if we had a Father? And Jesus goes, that's the, that's the kicker. I've actually been showing you what it would look like if you had a Father. You missed it. Because, not because you had a bad image of the father. You missed it because you don't know what a dad looks like. You don't know what a real spiritual father looks like. Show us the father. They hadn't been looking for the father because they didn't think of God in fatherly terms. That leads me to these three verses. Luke chapter 11, 
verse 11, Jesus says, if a son asks for bread from any father among you, this puts us in the driver's seat in this story, okay? Don't think in terms of God is my father. Think in terms of I am a father or a mother because we're talking paternal, maternal. All you do there is change one letter. Dads don't love their kids more than moms do. Moms don't love their kids more than dads do. Mom is in the father in God as much as dad is in the father, okay? So paternal, maternal love. Moms, dads, this is us. If a son asks for bread from any father, I'll even say if a son asks for bread from any mother, throw that in. Would you give him a stone? If he asked for a fish, would you give him a serpent instead of a fish? If he asked for an egg, would you offer him a scorpion? If you then, we're going to deal with these, but if, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those that ask him? In a very similar story to this, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, Jesus asks this, the only thing he leaves out is the whole egg and scorpion part. We'll get into that in a second. But in that version of the story, he says, you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more would the Heavenly Father give good things to those that ask Him? So in Matthew 7, ask for good things. In Luke 11, ask for the Holy Spirit. You could make the argument, that's one and the same. If it's the Holy Spirit, it's going to be a good thing. The Matthew story, he follows it up with the golden rule, which is an interesting drop in. Do unto others, you'd have them do unto you. Puts that right after the, the, the asking of th good things. I want, to, I want to work on these. I'm going to work on the, I'm going to, the terminology. I'm going to work on the, the, the egg and the bread and, and all of that. But I, I just wanted to start by putting you there. I want you to put yourself there. Sometimes we won't put ourselves here properly because we've got this real idea that we should never acquiesce to being evil. Jesus goes, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, we'll go, well, we're not evil. Can't be really talking about us. So let's get rid of that. Um, the word evil here is the same word for wicked. It's, it's all of us in all of our failures as parents. Can you admit you got a few? <laughs> all right. I've got a bunch of them. And in, in all of my failures as a parent, I wouldn't be that stupid. That's Jesus' point. In all of your failures as a parent, you're not so stupid as your kid goes, can I get bread? And you give him a plate full of rocks. You're either not that stupid and you're not that cruel. Even in your worst day as a dad, you're not this bad. That's what Jesus is saying. So even in your worst day as a dad. Now, why would he use those illustrations? And I think it's because, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but I think it's because that's sort of the idea of what we bring to the table with God is that sometimes we ask for one thing and God gives us something else because God knows what's good for us. In other words, I ask for bread, God gives me a stone. If God gives me a stone, he must need me to break my tooth. Must be God's will. I don't know why God did it, but God did it. And that's sort of been the attitude for centuries, even past this text, of people going, you know, I ask God for whatever he wants, then whatever bad thing happens, I just assume that's what God wanted me to have. And I think it's a pitiful way to live because you being evil wouldn't parent your kids that way. You know, my kid didn't ask correctly, so I'm going to teach him a lesson and I'm break their molar, and then that'll teach him to ask me properly. And so just realize that in this text, Jesus is showing that we, even in our worst day, do better than we accuse God of doing. And that leads me to a number of thoughts. We start here. They have thought that God was arbitrary, just giving whatever he wants to whomever he wants for whatever reason he comes up with. 
And that sounds a lot like how we treat God in His sovereignty. God gets to do whatever He wants to whomever He wants, whenever He wants, for whatever reason God has. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. He's bigger than me. He's deeper than me. I can't explain it. Well, why did this happen to so-and-so? Hey, I don't know why God did that to so-and-so. God's got His reasons, and if they'll pay attention, they'll know. And I think that's one of the biggest reasons why he has to go after this idea that somehow God as a father doesn't do as well as we will. So to do that, let me show you a very ancient text. I'm going to take you to a little story from the book of Job. And I want to remind you that Job is quite possibly the oldest piece of literature in the Old Testament. And what I mean by that is, is that it was probably penned before anything else. Um, there's pretty heavy evidence it was probably even penned before the Torah. Um, and that doesn't mean that the law wasn't known. In fact, Job mentions the law once. But it means that this is the most ancient idea of God we get when you read the Bible, is the book of Job. And the fascinating thing is that the book of Job opens with a sort of behind-the-curtain moment where you get to look into the heavens and now don't, by the way, build your theology out of the scene in heaven in the book of Job, all right? We have ancient people with an allegory of what they thought God looked like and what they thought the cosmos looked like. Don't build your theology out of what you see, but do get an understanding of why the author is doing what he's doing because we're about to go into a journey where a guy loses everything and everybody around him is going to blame God and blame him and his sin. But the book opens by showing you that all of the angels and the demons, even though it doesn't use that word, all of the angels, the host of heaven come before God. And you know the story, but I'll repeat it for someone who might not and who doesn't want to take the time to read the first couple of chapters. They all come before God. And God says to Satan, the Satan, the adversary character, where have you been? He goes, oh, I've been roaming up and down in the earth. And before the story ends, I don't, I don't want to belabor it. Before the story ends, have you considered my servant Job? Job's perfect. Job lives right. Well, I've considered Job, but you won't let me touch him. Okay, go do whatever you want. Just don't touch his body. And then Satan leaves and destroys all of Job's stuff and comes back to God and goes, yeah, you're right. He didn't curse you, but if you'll let me touch his body, he will curse you. And God says, okay, you can touch his body, but you can't kill him. Satan comes back to the earth. There's this repeat of this story at the beginning of Job so that the reader will know what's happening. Now, nobody on the earth knows what's happening. Job doesn't know what's happening. Job's friends do not know what's happening. And three of the worst friends in the history of bad friends approach Job by chapter 3 and begin to tell Job systematically why they think he's lost his kids, his house, his cattle, his wife, and most of the health on his body. And it all has to do with sin. And God's trying to teach him a lesson. And I want to show you an example. Here's Zophar. From Job chapter 11, verse 4. You said my doctrine is pure. I'm clean in your eyes. But oh, that God would speak and open his lips against you. Six. That he would show you the secrets of wisdom, for they would double your prudence. Know therefore that God exacts from you less than your iniquity deserves. What a statement. God hasn't even done as bad yet as your sin demands God to do. God demand He would... God exacts from you less than your iniquity does. Can you search out the deep things of God? Can you find the limits of the Almighty? They're higher than the heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol. That's as close as you get to the Old Testament for hell. Deeper than hell. What can you know? This is, this is the advice of his friend. He goes, look, you think it's bad? 
It's not half as bad as it ought to be, you lying sinner. God has, is out to get you. God's going to show you. You don't know anything about it. You can't know the deep things of God. You can't know the limits of God. Quit trying to figure out why this all happened to you. I picked one little slice from the book of Job. The whole book is this bad and worse. We could have went on and on and on showing you what his three pseudo friends think about his condition. And then at the end of the book, God shows up. And this is an amazing book, by the way. It opens with God talking and it ends with God talking. And there's chaos in the middle, which tells me something. In the beginning is God. He who was, he who is, and he who is to come. And in the middle is all of our shenanigans and foolishness. And he's the alpha and the omega. He's the beginning and the end. And when God shows up at the end of the book in Job 42, 7, he says this. So it was after the Lord had spoken to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, my wrath is aroused against you and your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. This tells me that when you read the book of Job, you can take most of it and throw it in the trash. You ever heard anybody say that about scriptures in the Bible? Not from the pulpit, you haven't. I don't mean you should literally cut the book of Job out of your Bible. I mean you should take the words of God at face value. And God goes, a bunch of the junk you just heard wasn't me. I don't care how many times they said, thus saith the Lord. It's not the way I'm thinking. And so I could have picked 10, 20, 30, 40 examples from the book of Job of how they badmouthed Job and they badmouthed God. And they said that this is what God's doing to you. God's trying to teach you a lesson. God's holy. You're not. And God walks into the last and goes, everything they just said is bull. None of it is right. They have not properly represented me. Now I want to ask you this. If in the oldest piece of literature that Israel had, they saw God the way these three friends did, and God shows up and goes, none of that's right. Is it possible that by the time Jesus comes, we've got a whole body of literature, we've got a whole biblical corpus of people saying things about God that do not reflect the heart of the Father? I think Job exists to show us that we often misinterpret God, that we do not understand that some of what we're accusing God of, God is not guilty of. And that leads me to the second thought. They have thought that God was always teaching us a lesson. And so Jesus says, if you ask for bread, would you give a stone? If you ask for fish, would you give a snake? Would you ask for egg? Would you give a scorpion? Because that in their mind is exactly how God does. We ask God for one thing, God gives us another thing because God's trying to show us something that he wants us to know. These things look alike, but they're nothing alike. And it would be a cruel joke to exchange these for one another. And also, it'd be an act of hatred and it'd be an act of cruelty. The stone actually kind of looks like bread. The snake actually kind of looks like a fish. And in the world of the Middle East, the scorpion, the white scorpion, was actually the size of an egg and looked a lot like an egg and could be confused for one. And so Jesus chooses three things that don't go together, but that look a lot alike in a way in which you might assume that you've asked for one thing and God gives you something similar, but not exactly what you want because God's always trying to teach you a lesson. Now notice that he's pitched himself, he's pitched us, the listener, the reader, as a father and a mother who would never do this. 
would never our kid ask for us for a loaf of bread and give him a stone. And where does he come up with this? Because this is the mentality that the Job, the books of the Job of the world has. That you think one thing about God, but God's going to do something else because you can't really know God. You can't know the heart of God. And I believe that what Jesus is saying to his audience is you would never, you're not even good parents all the time. And you would never do something this terrible, this cruel. To where your kid would ask for one thing and you would give them something else because you're always trying to teach them a lesson. And eventually they're going to stop asking you for things because they don't want another lesson. Have you noticed that? If every time your kid comes to you with something, you have a speech, they stop coming to you with stuff. Why is that? Because it's a bait and switch. All I wanted was a loaf of bread and you gave me a bag of stones. I just needed an ear, but you wanted to teach me a lesson. I've done that. I've been guilty of being Mr. Lesson Giver. You know, come in, got a little something I need to share with you. Ooh, I got, ooh, let me tell you a story. You know, 20 minutes later, their eyes are glazed over and they're passed out. And you go, well, that's the last time they're coming to you. They didn't ask for a podcast. They, they just needed, a, they needed to take a bite of bread. And you thought they should probably learn how to carry stones. Because that would help in life if you, if you knew the difference in bread and a stone. And I really think it's what Jesus is laying out in front of us. Is to say, you ask for one thing, you don't expect to get another. You wouldn't do that as a good parent. You wouldn't do that as a good father. And that leads me to that last verse, that 13th verse. I want to reread it. If you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, then how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit or good things to those who ask him? And I really think this, this verse is an accusation. It sounds like this is the Paul White translation, by the way. I was going to tell you, this is my translation. You people are wicked and yet you assume yourselves to be a better parent than me? You attribute actions to me that no good father would ever do. I want you to think about that. Because we're really heading towards the landing spot in this. I want to dwell right there for a minute. In my worst moment as a parent, I wouldn't do what Jesus says his father is being accused of doing. And this tells me something tells me that we don't understand that our father has a pater- that God is our father. We do not understand the paternal love of God. We think that God's always out to teach us a lesson. We think that God's always out to shift and to make things different and to make things better. I think we actually think the end game in this is doing better. I read a quote this week very famous quote in the grace community. I've quoted this. I've built whole sermons out of this. This quote was in my first book repeatedly. So I say all of that because I'm not cutting the quote down. In fact, I believe it. But I never heard the Holy Spirit say to me what I heard him say this week when I read this quote. And I've read it a thousand times. Here's the quote. It's, it's Charles Spurgeon, the great prince of preachers. Right believing leads to right living. It's a pretty good quote. Believe right, live right. I've wrote that, I've preached that, I've said that. I stand on it. If you believe right, then the the right will come out. But I I read it this week for the 15,000th time and heard the Holy Spirit tag this on the back of it. Let me me reread it first, okay? And then I'll tell you what I heard the Spirit say. Right believing leads to right living. And what will that get you? That's what I heard the Holy Spirit say. What will right 
living get you? So I stopped and stared at it for a while. I thought, well, you know, let's reread it. Right believing leads to right living. Heard him say it again. But what would right living get you? What's your end game, son? Did you get in this to live right? If you got in this to live right, then right believing would lead to right living. You got what you needed just by believing because what you wanted was to live right. But be honest with me, son, because this ain't about lying to me. Did you actually get involved in following me to live right? My mind goes back to John 10.10, where Jesus says, I have come that you might have life and that you might live right. And you know it's wrong because it doesn't sound right because he didn't say I've come that you might have life and that you might live it right. He said I've come that you might have life and they might have it more abundant. That your life might be more full of life. Not that your life might be right lived versus wrong lived. I don't disagree that right believing will lead to right living. My question is what would you get if you lived right? Would you be more anointed? Would you get more grace? Would God bless you? Would you be closer to heaven? Would you be one step closer to heaven than than you were to hell? If so, then is it the right living that's doing it or the right believing that's doing it? If right believing leads to right living, then what's right living get you? Well, it gets me more anointed. Then, Then the key is right living and the cheat code is right believing. Well, guess what that is? Works with a new package on it. Because in the end, i got to do right so I can get more from God. But I can't do right on my own. The law suppresses me. It kills me. You know what I need to do? Believe right. Because if I believe right, I'll do right. And the key to getting God to do stuff for me is to do right for Him. I disagree. I don't think the key to getting God to do things for you is to do things for Him. I think maybe we need a new phrase. Right believing leads to God giving us Abundant life. That's what Jesus promised us. What does abundant life look like? I don't know what abundant life looks like, but I know it isn't unlocked by me doing right. And so my right living, my right living might make the difference for for my neighbor. My right living might be the key to unlocking the world I wish I could live in. Because... I do unto others as I'd have them do unto me. That'd be a better world to live in than I treat you like hell, so maybe you'll treat me like hell. That's a real fun place to live. No, maybe my right living is to cause the world around me to be a better place to live in. That doesn't sound so bad. That doesn't save me, and it doesn't save them, but it improves my condition, or at least it unleashes the kingdom into my life, but it doesn't make me closer to God, and it doesn't make me more forgiven, and it doesn't make me more righteous, and it doesn't make me more saved. If that be the case, once again, it feels like we've developed another transactional relationship with God whereby we believe right, then we live right, and that gets us something. And yet, I don't think that's a father. I have never given my kids food because they lived right but I have given my kids food because they believe they live in the right house and they get to come to the table. See the difference? Now, if my kids didn't believe that was their house, they wouldn't come home. (laughs) They'd go to somebody else's house and they're going to miss out on dinner because dinner's on the table. 
You know how much I charge them for it? Nothing. Because they're mine. Their living doesn't have anything to do with them getting to eat. They have a bedroom. They get to sleep in it. The only thing they got to do is have the identity as my kids. That's it. If they know they're my kids, they could just walk in the house, kick their shoes off, sling mud all over the place, go up into their bedroom, do whatever. Why? Because they have identity. Not because they have performance. Their right believing may very well lead them to living right as my kids, but that will not get them one more meal in my house. That's what I'm trying to say. Their right believing, leading to right living, does not get them better food. You know what, man? You've been living better this week. I'm going to feed you better. That's, I don't think that's a dad. I don't think that's a mom. And I think that's what Jesus is trying to portray as he shares this about being a father. So let me give you a few things I don't think we would do. All right? I want, you, I want to acquiesce that we are wicked. Now, what I mean by that, I don't mean we're lost. I don't mean we're hellbound. I mean we're not always good parents. Okay? Maybe you are. I'm just going to go ahead and say it. I'm not always the best dad. Try to be, want to be, aspire to be, pray to be. Because I love my kids. That's the only reason I want to be a good dad. Not because I need a dad of the year award or I need you to think I'm a good dad. It's just because I want my kids to be. I want them to be loved. I want them to have a better experience than having a trash dad and someone doesn't care about them and, you know, abandons them, forgets about them, beats them up. So my motivation is not dad of the year. My motivation is love my kids. I kind of feel like that's God with us. So I love them. Now, I'll admit, not always the best at it. So me being wicked, there's some things I would never do to my kids. I would never do this to my kids. And if you think God would do this to people, then you need to ask yourself if you're a better dad than he is. And this is why the Holy Spirit will me preach this message. Because there's a few of these that every now and then I accuse God of, and I still think he knows my that he's my father? Come on. I would never do this. And if I would never do this, how can I be a good dad? So here's a few things I would not dare do. I would not dare, we would not dare punish our children for any other reason than, I said that, but it's them. Punish our children for any other reason than correction, never for revenge. I would never correct or punish my children as payback. Would you? I'm going to get them back. I gotta, I'm going to pay them back for what they've done. I discipline my kids because I want to correct their behavior or I want to correct their spot in the world for the purpose of giving them a better life because I know the road that they're going down and what they just did is going to create chaos. And I'm going to chastise that. And Hebrews says God chastises those that he loves. And if you don't receive chastisement, you're the same as a bastard. He goes, in other words, you don't have a dad. If your dad doesn't take the time out to chastise you in the areas where he goes, hey, you're going wrong. You're steering wrong here, man. Get back in line. If you don't have a father that does that, you don't have a father that loves you. But you, you would never discipline your kids for revenge. I'm going to be the one that pays them back. I'm going to get them back. And that punishment would be reluctant. If you've ever chastised your kids, is your punishment reluctant? Mine has been. I don't, I don't feel like the proper response for me is the excitement. Come home, find out what they did. Yes, I'm going to go punish some kids. We would, that's a weird parent that's really pumped up about ex, uh, punishing children. So it would be with reluctance and it would be commensurate with age. And what, there is discipline commensurate with age and then there's 
discipline not commensurate with age. There are ways to discipline a three-year-old that you wouldn't use on your 13-year-old. There are ways to discipline your 10-year-old that you wouldn't use on your 18-year-old. And if you don't learn the difference in that, you'd be a terrible, you won't, you won't do a good job at this because you can't discipline in the same manner. You're not a better father than the father, by the way. So if you know that by default, don't you think the father knows that as well? And this is why I don't believe that God disciplines Christians the same way. And we love to think that there's this singular way that God does what he does to people. Why would there be? There's not a singular. You don't, you don't even raise your boy the same way you raise your girl. If you have a boy and a girl, you don't raise them the exact same way. You don't discipline them the same way. You don't even talk to them the same way because they're two different people. They're not just cookie cutter people just because they share your last name. And so following the dictates of the Spirit, listening to how the Holy Spirit disciplines person to person, it's not some universal thing. Here's something else I would never dare to do. I would never dare to cause harm, to brutalize or abandon my kid. And if this is God in the way that you think he does his business in the world is that sometimes God causes people harm, sometimes God kills people, and sometimes God leaves people hanging out to dry, then you accuse God of being a worse parent than you are because you wouldn't do that to your own kids. And if you would, they probably need taken away from you. If you're going to harm them, brutalize them, or abandon them, you probably don't need to be raising them. And we actually agree with that in society, right? Almost to the man, people go, man, that dude shouldn't even be a parent. Then we go into church and say, God's ways are higher than our ways. Sometimes God does all this stuff. And I think that's why Jesus had to restore the image of the Father because all we had was a God. We didn't have a Father. Here's another thing I wouldn't do. I wouldn't, we wouldn't leave our children to the consequences of their actions when we could fix or improve the situation. We just wouldn't. Now, sometimes we do because we know that it's the only way that it can properly be done in the world. But I'm talking about we have the power to actually help them in an area that's going to destroy them. And we don't help them because we think, well, they, they reap what they sow. They get what's coming to them. And I don't want to list off 10 ways I think the Lord does this versus ways he doesn't. But I think it's, just, I think it's something to think about. One more. Um, we wouldn't dare interfere with their will to live and to decide for themselves. So why would God? I don't want to tell my kids what job to have. I don't want to tell them who to marry. I don't want to tell them where they're supposed to live, what kind of car they're supposed to drive, what kind of clothes they're supposed to wear. Especially now that they're adults. I mean, what, why? You let them be free. Why would we accuse God of doing anything less? I'm doing this because God won't let me do anything else. I never believe that when people tell me that. People say things like, I'm doing this because God won't let me do anything else. You go, you, that's not your father. Your father doesn't look at you and go, you know what, you're going to do this whether you like it or not. <laughs> you go, no. The moment you start to recognize him as father, I think you'll start to reinterpret how he's viewing what you're doing. I think you'll, I'm a, I'll even say this. The moment you start to see God as father, you'll start to feel him release you from stuff you thought he was making you do. That's a prophetic word for somebody out there. You've been, God's making me do this. I gotta be in this church. I gotta be in this place. God makes me do it. The minute he starts to become father, you'll feel him let his, let his hand off. You go, you don't have to do this. I'm your dad, you're my kid. I'm not gonna tell you where you gotta live. It'd be like me telling my kids what, what kind of job they gotta have. It'd be like me telling my kids what state they can live in. Let me tell my kids what kind of house they gotta be in. I don't do that. If I wouldn't do it, why would God do it? Paternal love has nothing to do with proportion. In other words, we don't love our kids more when they do better. 
If right believing leads to right living, praise God. But what's the end game as far as God's love? He didn't love you anymore when you lived right and you lived wrong. He didn't give you more grace because you lived right than when you lived wrong. His love is not proportional with you living right. His love is not proportional with you doing right. I don't love my children more because they are better. I don't love my children less when they aren't good. They're mine and therefore I love them. And this is why I needed to hear this message again. Because in these little bitty ways, every now and then, I've changed the way I view God. And he doesn't look much like a father. He looks a whole lot like a God. And it's God saying to me, son, if you ask for bread, I don't give you a stone. You ask for a fish, I don't give you a snake. You ask for an egg, I don't give you a scorpion. You wouldn't even be this bad of a dad. Why are you accusing me of being this bad of a dad? I love you. I wouldn't do these things to you. Simple verse to end on. You all know it. 1 John 4, 19. This is why I say love's not proportional. The only way we love him because he first loved us. You don't even know what it means to love God unless you know what it means for God to love you. And a lot of the reasons why we struggle in our love relationships is because we don't know the love that's been given for us. The love that God has for us as a father, then we reciprocate that love as a son. When we think he's a God only, we respond as a servant. When we think he's a father, we start to live as sons. And sons don't have to freak out about what dad thinks about them because dad doesn't stop thinking good about them. They're his son. They're his daughter. That's ours. I hope it says something to you, but I can tell you, it really says something to me. I didn't think I needed to hear it again, but I know I needed to hear it again. That I am the father's son. That the father is not looking for me to do stuff. He wants to be with me. You know where this is really coming into bear? This is we learn as we get to different stages of parenting. Now I'm parent of an adult. Hadn't been parent of an adult very long. I was parent of kids forever. But now I'm a parent of an adult. We've got other parents of adults in this room. And you don't treat your adult kid the way you treated them when they were 12 or the way they were two. If you do, you won't have them very long because ain't nobody going to put up with that junk when they don't have to. I'm not going to be your little kid forever. But you know what I love now is that, and my daughter's getting close to that age, but my son's definitely there. And now... I don't want to spend time with my son to improve his life. I just want to spend time with my son. I don't need to give him advice. I don't need to find out what he did at work. I don't need to know who his friend group is. I just want him to want to hang out with me. You know, like where he wants to hang out. And guys, that's your father. Ask your father. He goes, I don't, need to, I don't need to fix your life. Stop the whole right believing, right living, but just you and me. If, it's, if, it's, if, if I could just hang out with you for a little bit. I don't, I don't need your money. I don't need your stuff. I don't need your stories. You can tell me all you want. You can give me all you want. Fine. I just want to hang out with you. I just want to spend time with you. So guess what? Go do that this week. Just go stop spending time with God this week and start spending time with your father. And it could be that easy to flip that switch. Go, okay, I'm going to start right there. I'm not going to go to you as God anymore. I'm just going to come to you as if you're my dad. Say, I just want to spend time with you. Dad, I just want to hang out with you. I, don't, I just want to go fishing together. I just want to drink a cup of coffee with you. And we don't even have to talk. I just want to be in the same room with you because I got your DNA. And I want to see what you look like. Man, 
That, that moves you as a parent. Imagine what our Heavenly Father's waiting for. I got... It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He goes, how much more would your Father give good things to those that asked Him as if He was their dad? Hey, Dad, I just need to be with you. And He goes, come on. Yeah, but Dad, I haven't been living right. He goes, stop that business. I don't love you. What are you talking about living right? You're my kid. You're my son. Come here. I want to show you love. That's the only way anymore I know how to preach the Father's love, is to preach it as a father. Preach it as a father that loves his kids and that's adjusting as his kids get older and that's having to treat them differently than I used to. And I used to see God as this, he'd never changed. He, he was going to say the same thing forever. He was going to discipline across the board the same way. And now as I'm the dad of kids getting older, a boy and a girl, a man and a woman, hearing the father say, you being wicked know how to be a better dad than you think I am to you sometimes. And I don't believe that. I don't believe I'm a better dad than a father. And no, no disrespect to you, but I don't think you're better parents than God is either. <laughs> I don't think you're a better parent than God is. And I think we know it. And so it's just learning to let him do that. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. What a day. What a word. What a word for me. You just spoke to me told me what you'd have me to know, and I pray that I've done justice. pray I've done some justice to that word. Father, we need a revelation of your love. We need to know that we being wicked know how to give good gifts to our children. How much more would you give good things to us if we ask? I don't think you're looking for another moment that we come to you to figure out how to do things right. Instead, I think you just want to hang out with us. Thank you for that. Teach us what that looks like. Help me this week, Father, to stop viewing you as God and start viewing you as my dad. I think it's a good place to start. In Jesus' name, amen.